excited now for the opportunity to uh, dig into God's words together, uh, do what we do each Sunday, look at a passage, talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, some way to access the Bible, uh, if you would turn to our passage today, which is going to be Psalm 63. Psalm 63, beginning at verse 1, and when you found that, if you're able, if you would stand together with me for the reading of God's word. David writes this, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. But all the mouths of liars will be stopped. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly and we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, I just ask now that you come illumine the preaching of your word. Open up this psalm of David to our hearts, our minds, our eyes. Accomplish the work that you want to accomplish in each one of us through it. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, have you um, ever been walking in a park down a street, maybe in a shopping mall somewhere, and seen an elderly couple together that just look, I don't know, embarrassingly still in love with each other. <laughs> they're just like holding hands, they're all snuggling in, they're like gazing into each other's eyes. There's like this, um, maybe they're even like dancing cheek to cheek to some live music that's playing in the park. And, and you look at that and you just think, oh man, I look so good. I, I wonder how they did that. How do they do that? Because that's, what, that's the thing, you know, anyone who's been in a relationship before at all, you know that, like, even just staying together with someone 50 or 60 years, that alone is a pretty amazing accomplishment all on its own. But to maintain that kind of deep, passionate, really youthful love with one another as well, it's just this really beautiful, inspiring thing to witness when you see it. And maybe... If, if maybe it's one of those rare occasions where you just happen to have a little bit more time on your hands, don't have to get somewhere right away, you might even find the courage to go over to them, talk to them, and just kind of say, like, tell me about your relationship. You guys seem really in love. How, 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 what's been your relationship practices over the years? How did you manage to navigate all the many dangers, toils, and snares common to all relationships and still maintain such an obvious satisfaction with one another? Well, I don't know if it's the same for you, but I feel just the same way when I see somebody who has a strong faith. Someone with a strong faith, when I see that, I feel just the same way. And when I say strong faith, I don't mean someone that's like 
talking about faith stuff all the time, quoting Bible verses all the time. What I mean is, somebody who's just got a genuine love for Jesus, at that, then you just see them continuing to pursue an ever deeper love with him over the years, even in spite of maybe having to endure suffering, hardships, the kind of things that would cause many to fall away. We, I'll tell you, we, we, I know we've got people with faith like that here in this church that I just admire so much. I'm thinking people we prayed for this morning, Glenn and Sharon, those are some people who just walked through really hard stuff and just maintained this faith, which is really inspiring to see. I've, I've got a dear friend with faith like that, walking through some of the darkest days of his life right now. And, and that, that's beautiful to behold as well. That's something in, beautiful and inspiring. It's amazing to me too. I look at that and I wonder how they do it. You know, what's their faith practice? What's their pursuit of Jesus look like that allows them or that's enabled them to endure the many to dangers, toils, and snares that come along with a relationship with Jesus but still maintain such an obvious satisfaction in him. How'd they do it? And when you look at the life and writings of someone like King David from the Bible, and this psalm that we're looking at today in particular, I think you absolutely see someone with that same kind of passionate, inspiring love for God. When you look at David, he's got this kind of depth of relationship with God described in this psalm. You look at it, you just think, wow, <laughs> that looks so good like how, how did he do that how did he get to that level of love and trust and confidence with god which i mean i realize even in saying that that's not the case for everyone here who who hears this psalm for some of you no right like you you read this psalm and david's faith it's not inspiring to you it's crushing or it feels like completely unattainable i could never accomplish something like that for others i don't know you you read a psalm 63 kind of passage and it's I mean it's interesting to you but not all that practical I mean David seems a little bit excessive your faith is good but it's good to not maybe get quite as fanatical as this but for anyone who is either inspired to have faith like David's yourself or maybe just wants to want to have faith like he had what I think is really amazing about Psalm 63 is we're given really just a front row seat to David's inmost thoughts his private conversations and interactions with God here in this passage, which I believe holds some powerful clues as to learning how we can pursue faith and, and greater depth of relationship with God like this ourselves. And there's lots of different aspects of David's pursuit of God that we could touch on from this passage, which are really kind of like the building blocks, the foundation of this love for God that he has. Obviously, that helped him develop this deep satisfaction with God, but two that we're just going to focus on particularly today are the context of David's faith and then the call of David's faith. Just those two things today, the context and the call of David's faith. So if you closed your Bible, would you mind opening Bible with me again to this passage? Psalm 63, beginning at verse 1, follow along with me as we dig into the faith practice of this one who God himself referred to as a man after his own heart, with the hope that, like David, we too might find our true satisfaction in God. Okay, so let's look first of all at the context of David's faith. What is the context of his faith? And I know I probably said this so much that maybe some of you who have been here a while are kind of sick of it, but I say this a lot, but context is so important, right? 
the, the context re remains, like to understand a particular passage, its, its meaning, its purpose, we need to understand the context. Why? Well, because context determines meaning. Change the context, and you change the meaning of words. For instance, like a king, maybe in medieval times, who says to another king, I will utterly destroy you. That means something different when you take that over to two friends sitting across a chessboard from one another, or you sitting in front of that piece of birthday cake that you hid from everyone else that you've now pulled out at night and you're sitting in front of. I will utterly destroy you. Context makes those words mean different things, doesn't it? And it's a fact that's equally relevant to our passage today because I don't know about you, but before knowing the context of David when he's writing this psalm, this psalm feels kind of all over the place. It feels kind of scattered, doesn't it? And, and almost like David has a little bit, he's a little bit embarrassingly in love with God. We're kind of like, wow, that's a lot, man. Like, you're cool, but it, it feels like a lot. But if you look immediately above verse 1 in your passage, what you should see are these words. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Does everyone see that? Words that are very much a part of Psalm 63 and whether they were written by David himself or a compiler of the Psalms, like added later on, definitely what they show us regardless is the context in which Psalm 63 was written. That's the context when David was writing this Psalm. And there's some debate as to whether this is referring to when David was fleeing from King Saul before he became king, he's running around in the wilderness, or when he was fleeing from his son Absalom who had kind of tried to carry out a kind of coup d'etat against his own father, running through the wilderness again. But regardless, what we can know for certain is this. The context of Psalm 63 is David is running for his life. That's the context. He is on the run for his life, which I trust. Now you'd agree, okay, well, this gives us a lot more insight and clarity into the psalm, what, what David's talking about here. Okay, verse 1. David compares his thirst for God to someone in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Okay, we know now that's because David's in the desert. That's the context that he's in. He's describing even just where he's at right now. When, when he talks about God's steadfast love being better than life itself in verse 3 or verse 9 when he talks about those who seek to destroy his life, we know that's because his life is literally being threatened at this very moment. And yet for all the clarity and understanding the context in which this psalm was written brings, it also brings up questions, right? There's questions that come when we understand this. Because if you're at all like me, you're like, okay, sure, great. Like, yeah, that's helpful. Knowing the context makes a lot of sense of a lot of these details that David is talking about here. Good. But, bro, like, if, if David is literally running for his life in the wilderness right now, why is he writing a psalm? of such passionate praise to God, or speaking with such confidence, confident expectation of God's deliverance when God hasn't delivered him yet. What's going on? Well, we'll spend a bit of time looking at how David can do this in the next point when we talk about the call of David's faith. But for the moment, what I want us to focus on here in particular is just this simple fact, the reality that it's possible just to start there, it's possible to praise God in the wilderness. It's possible to praise him in this context as well as to have a confident expectation of his deliverance before he's even delivered you yet. That's what this psalm shows us, first of all. That's possible. 
And David writing this psalm, by the way, from the wilderness, it's actually one of the big reasons I wanted to talk to you from this psalm today in particular, particularly given what we looked at last week, those of you who were here with us, and we talked about how knowing that our place in the story that we need to always remember is that we're in the middle of the story. We need to remember that always. So if you think about it, when we take the story of the people in Exodus and, and kind of lay it as a template over our own, and we see we're in the middle, what that means for us and for them is what? We're in the wilderness, right? The middle part of the story is, is the wilderness. This, this in-between place on the way to God's promised rest one day, but where reliance on God for protection and provision today is going to be a constant need. That's what life in the wilderness looks like. Which, as you can probably imagine, that's a challenge. That's a tough sell uh, for people to accept, particularly in our modern kind of highly individualistic culture to tell people today, hey, by the way, you, you can't do it. <laughs> You're not going to make it on your own. You need something else, or in this case, someone else, other than yourself in order to provide for you, in order to protect you so you can make it. And to tell people that praise is something that's even possible when the desired destination hasn't been reached yet. That's a tough sell to kind of put that out to people. We, it doesn't seem rational when we read this. And it actually, it's, it's not a totally unreasonable struggle that people have to understand that giving, because giving praise, giving thanksgiving is something that's reserved in most of our experience for something that we do or that takes place at the completion of a task. Right? When you've arrived at the destination, you, you've reached the goal, that's when praise and thanksgiving happen, right? Like those of you who are students right now, if you're in school, I can almost guarantee that at no point in time as a teacher or professor ever stopped you mid-exam, mid-test, just to praise you for how many questions you've already answered. And then told you about their confident expectation. I know you're going to complete this test in the allotted time and you're going to pass with flying colors. That, that's never happened, right? We, we, don't, we, just, we just don't do that. that. That's likely none of our experience. So it makes sense that we'd struggle to understand this placement here. And yet, here is pesky King David messing with the order of things, making things uncomfortable, praising God and worshiping him in a context that doesn't seem reasonable, that doesn't seem to make sense. Why? Why is he doing this? Well, I think the answer is this. Because for David, while context determines meaning, okay, that hasn't changed, context determines meaning. For David, what context does not determine is his practice. I'll say that again. For David, while context determines meaning, it doesn't determine his practice. For from the time that he was a young shepherd boy out in the wilderness tending his father's sheep up until this day, David has faced countless situations where his life was threatened, where his well-being was at risk. And yet over time, he just, he'd seen the faithfulness of God to him so regularly, he'd simply learned to shift the placement of his praise from after God had already delivered him to before it had even happened yet. He learned he could just do that. So yes, no question, the context of David's expression of faith and trust in God for us is unnatural. And yet, by learned experience, it had become the most natural thing in the world for David. And maybe you'd hear that and you'd say, okay, well, sure. That's all well and good for David, but look at his life. I mean, the guy had so many amazing examples of God's faithfulness to him through his life to, to rely on. I, I sure don't have 
any examples like that in mind. To which, first of all, I'd want to question, uh, I'd want to question you whether or not that's truly the case. Um, like, just because, uh, you know, God hasn't delivered you from bears and towering giants with nothing but a sling and a stone doesn't mean that he hasn't been faithful to you. And then secondly, I'd want to ask you, when was the last time you tried, really tried to just sit down and really just think back and chronicle through your life all the ways that God has been faithful to you over the course of your life? Have you ever tried that? Because here's the thing I found, almost invariably over the years, is that people who say they've got no examples of God's faithfulness, or, or almost no examples, are people who very often have adopted a cynical mindset in order to protect them from feeling disappointed. It's probably not going to work out, probably not going to happen. They've adopted this cynical mindset to help them protect themselves against disappointment. But as you probably already know, cynicism is the very antithesis of gratitude. Can't do both at the same time. Because not always, but, but most times, what I found is what people actually mean when they say they have no examples of faithfulness to them over the years is they mean life hasn't worked out like I thought it would. Life hasn't happened like I thought it would or like I hoped it would. I prayed for something I did trust and it didn't happen. So I've just decided I need to protect myself against disappointment, just not trust and not try anymore. Which, hear me, that's a completely... Life hasn't worked out like I thought it would. That's a completely valid statement. It's heartbreaking. And, and, and we should hear that and, and enter into that experience with people. But that's not the same thing as God still not being faithful to you over the course of your life. In fact, it very well may, that, it very well may be that the cynicism that has resulted from your disappointed expectations is something that's actually blocking you, that's, that's hindering you from your vision of just how much God has done for you. In her book, 1,000 Gifts, Anne Vosskamp, uh, referring back to uh, chapter 3 of Genesis, kind of the beginning story of Adam and Eve and their failure to obey God and falling away, she says this, Satan's sin becomes the first sin of all humanity, the sin of ingratitude. Adam and Eve and their rebellion and distrust of God become simply and painfully ungrateful for what God gave. When we understand that the material world that God had made, the, the very life that he'd given them, was, were, were gifts of God to them to be enjoyed, as well as to reveal his nature and character. They just simply showed ingratitude by being like, thanks, but I'm going to choose this instead. So I don't know if that's a context you find yourself in this morning right now, a place where it's hard to see places of faithfulness. You're stuck in a place of cynicism. I, I'd, I'd invite you today later today to find literally 20 minutes of time. Grab yourself a cup of tea, quiet place, and just sit down for 20 minutes and try to just compile as many examples of God's blessing and faithfulness to you as you can think of through the course of your life. Everything from like big answers to prayer that you can remember or even just every breath you take in the course of those 20 minutes and everything in between. And just see how far you get in that time. I wonder if, Doing so, choosing intentionally to break the cycle of cynicism and pursue gratitude intentionally. I wonder if in doing that, you won't find that like David, you too have far more to praise God for right now in this current context 
than you ever thought possible or than you ever even imagined you had. Sometimes it just takes the intentionality of breaking the cycle of cynicism. Okay, so that's the context of David's faith. Again, not for a moment uh, kind of ignoring the hard, desperate circumstances that he's in. They, they are hard. They are difficult. Only that David didn't allow his context to determine his practice of praise or erode his competent expectation in God's deliverance. Last thing I want to look at together with you in our passage here is the call of David's faith. The call of David's faith. And as I read through this psalm, and I see a number of different things in David's own practice of faith that he's calling us to that, that could encourage us to find our satisfaction in God just as he did. But just want to pick out three quick ones here. Three quick ones in particular that I want to look at together with you, which I think are just going to get us well on our way in order to accomplishing this, to, to finding our true satisfaction in God. And those three things are contrasting, talking to ourselves, and solidifying identity. Okay? So quickly, let's look at this. First of all, contrasting. Contrasting. One of the key places I think you see David doing that is in verse 2. Look with me there. Um, right above, in verse 1, David had been expressing his whole self longing, body and soul for God. But then in verse 2, he describes this practice that fuels that passionate love and desire for God, namely, meeting with God, and beholding or gazing on his power and his glory. Why? How does, that, how does that help him? How does that help deepen his love for God and his confident expectation? Well, there's, there's lots we could say about this faith practice in particular. But just even at a very base level, when you remember the context that David's in, right? He's running for his life right now. What is it that we all desperately need when we're in a context or a situation that feels threatening? that feels outside of our ability to control or handle, don't we need to see the superior nature and power of someone or something else that can deliver us from whatever's currently threatening us? Like if you're a kid and you wander into your friend's backyard one day only to discover a very large, very unhappy-looking dog unleashed and looking directly at you, what do you need in that moment? You need to see or know that there's a larger, more powerful force somewhere, a mom, a dad, somebody, that is going to step in and, and help you rest in the fact that yeah, although this threat is still there, there's someone who can do something about it for you. We need to see that in that moment. I think that's exactly what David is doing here in this moment as he's fleeing for his life through the wilderness, as he's sitting up through the watches of the night because it's not safe to sleep for too long lest somebody find you. He's fixing his eyes on who he knows his God to be. And then contrasting that, God's glorious nature, his powerful nature, that, that picture with the people who are currently threatening his life. He's holding those two things up against each other. And again, it doesn't remove the threat for David. It doesn't. But it helps him to rest in the fact that his powerful, glorious God is more than able to do something about these people seeking to destroy his life. He's contrasting the two pictures, and it allows him to rest. It allows him to trust. That's why time in God's word is so important. Time individually, time corporately together, like you're doing right now, so important because it enables you, it brings you the ability to contrast whatever might be threatening you today, whatever's going on in your life with the power and glory of God that you're seeing, that you're reading about, that you're learning about. Because the more you know who God is, 
The more you understand through studied reflection and prayer, like how powerful he is, how glorious he is, the more you'll grow in your ability to contrast like this. The more your perspective will be changed when you understand the glory and power and size of your God in comparison to whatever it is that's currently threatening you, the situation that's threatening you. And the deeper you'll grow in your relationship with God at the same time as well. So that's contrasting. That's the first faith practice. The next faith practice we see David talking of us or calling us to here is talking to yourself. Talking to yourself. And I'm drawing that language from a famous quote by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his famous book, Spiritual Depression, where he writes this, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back all the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. And according to Dr. Jones, the solution, funny as it sounds, is to talk to yourself instead. Instead of listening to yourself, talking to yourself, which is exactly what I think we see David doing in a number of different places in this psalm. Talking there in verse 5, look, about his soul being satisfied. It's going to be satisfied with rich and fat foods. How God has been his help and protection all through his life there in verse 7. How, how the love of God to him is actually better than life itself in verse 3. And then although he's clinging to God, he tells himself in verse 8 that God's right hand is ultimately the thing that's upholding him. Why? Why would David talk to himself like this? Because if you look at the end of verse 11, look what's happening. He's being lied to. He needs to talk to himself because he's being lied to, both by those who are pursuing his life as well as his self that's talking to him. You know, who are you out here? You're, you're, there's no way you're going to make it through this. He's talking to himself because he's being lied to. So what David is showing us through his own faith practice is what it looks like to speak true things to ourselves when the lies that originate in others, as well as in ourselves, make us feel like God has abandoned us, make us feel like defeat is inevitable, speaking true things to yourself, which, like, you hear me, that's not at all, I'm, I don't mean wishful thinking, okay? Right? They have to actually be true things that you're saying to yourself. This isn't like positive self-talk, you know, David is trying to hype himself up to be like, I'm going to do it, I can do it, you know, or just saying, you know what, it's fine, don't worry, there's nothing to be afraid of, that's, that's not what I'm talking about here. The reality is, David might be captured and killed. That's a very real reality to his situation right now. But do you see, because he reminds himself there, even that if that were to happen, God's steadfast love towards him is better than life itself. He can still praise God in this dire context, even if it doesn't work out like he hoped. So we've seen contrast and we've seen talking to yourself. The last practice we see David calling us to is solidifying identity. Where you see him doing that is in verse 11, when he refers to himself as the king. He says, the king shall rejoice in God, which maybe doesn't seem, I don't know, all that significant in the moment. You're like, well, wasn't he the king? What's the big deal with that king? Yes, he was. But here's the thing. Regardless of whether this context that David is writing this psalm from is him fleeing Saul in the wilderness or fleeing Absalom in the wilderness, what makes it significant is that there were all kinds of factors going on in this situation, either one that could have easily caused him to question that identity or to abandon it entirely. How, how can I be a king hiding out in a cave in the wilderness? 
all kinds of things that, that circumstances and these lies that would cause him to question that identity. But in the midst of telling himself what's true, David holds fast to or solidifies his God-given identity as the king, this anointed king of Israel, with the same kind of confident expectation that although someone currently holds his seat in Jerusalem, they've taken it by force, he holds it with the confident expectation that he will one day rule from that place once again. I love the way Derek Kidner says this by way of uh, applying this faith practice to us today, noting this. He says, if this is written from David's banishment at the hands of Absalom, the royal title, calling himself king, becomes a reassertion of his calling. Which, is, which was from God, and an avowal that this cannot fail. A Christian parallel could be found in the doxology of John the prisoner, who praises God even from Patmos for the liberty and the royal priesthood, which are his birthright and ours. And this is the key. If David's faith in his kingly calling was well-founded, still more is the Christian's. So this faith practice is about reminding yourself regularly of your new identity about who you are as a new creation in Jesus, and in particular, doing that in moments like this, when, when trying circumstances of your present context are leading you to doubt that reality. I can't tell you how many times, even in my own life, in moments of like failure of some kind or when the circumstances of life feel so overwhelming to me that I don't feel like I can make it anymore, how sitting down at a piano or just getting on my headphones and just playing through or listening to I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Just like singing that truth to myself, solidifying who I am in Christ just makes such a difference to what it is I'm facing. For the failure I think I am, that now I can't be, or whatever it is, it completely changes the perspective. When I remind myself, I solidify my identity in who I am in Christ. These are three very simple faith practices, contrasting, talking to yourself, solidifying identity. But uh, simple practices that, as I alluded to earlier, these are the things, this is the answer to the how question. This is the answer to how David can offer up praise and express such confident expectation in God's deliverance, even in the midst of his trying context. These are the things he's doing that allow him to live that way and to accomplish this. There was a rootedness, a rootedness in both David's relationship with God as well as his identity in God as a result of this consistent faith practice over time. A depth and a rootedness in God that I believe we too can develop over time. If we work towards, did everyone hear me say that? Work towards um, increasingly incorporating these faith practices into our own lives, not mastering them the moment you first try them, Trust me, you won't. And neither did David. Guess what? Neither did David. But beginning to work towards increasingly incorporating these faith practices, which I believe God will absolutely honor your pursuit of him in these simple ways as you do them more and more. And just like he did with David, I believe he will uphold you with his right hand every step of the way as you do it. As I mentioned earlier on, one of the reasons I chose this passage in particular, one of the key reasons, was that it intimately describes David's practice and experience of faith in the very same place, metaphorically speaking, of course, 
that we're called to practice and experience faith today ourselves. The wilderness. This, this middle place between our calling by God and resting at last in his presence. So in a sense, I wanted to look through this passage in order to kind of answer the question that maybe came out of last week's message, which is like, okay, if I'm in this middle place, if I'm living in the wilderness, what does it look like to live faithfully here? So I think this psalm just kind of perfectly describes that for us. But again, I recognize that's also a hard reality because the wilderness is a place of dependence, right? Primarily due to its lack of the basic resources necessary for life, water, food, a shelter from the sun's punishing heat. That, that's what the wilderness looks like as well. So for David, finding himself in this desert place where none of those familiar sources of sustenance were available to him, what did that do, right? It forced him instead to rely solely on God to provide those needs. And graciously, what he found again and again was God's ability to satisfy him completely. To the place where even, look, look again at verse 5, he could see himself as feasting with fat and rich foods even in this desert place. It's a kind of satisfaction he still found in God as a result of this practice over time. And I believe the very same thing can be true for you and for me today. Hard as it is, hard as it is to acknowledge ourselves as being in this place of dependence, being in this place of reliance on God and unable to make it on our own. And yet here's the thing. Although it's not our final destination, it's not the ultimate place we're reaching or we're hoping to reach, I believe this middle place, this place of waiting, this place of dependence still has a very good purpose in our lives. How so? Well, I think J.I. Packer said it best when he wrote this. And still he, this is God, seeks the fellowship of his people and sends them both joys and sorrows in order to detach their hands from the things of this world and attach them unto himself. I love that. Why? Why would he do that? Well, because maybe the point, maybe the point at the end of the day, as David himself came to discover, is that it's only in the wilderness. It's only in the place of being restricted from accessing our familiar sources of comfort, our familiar sources of provision, that we finally seek the provision of God ourselves. Finding in him the only one that can truly satisfy the desires of our heart. And, just sa and satisfy every part of us, our whole selves, body, soul, and spirit. It's in the wilderness that we come to learn that. Jesus once said it this way to a woman by a well. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That water that I give him will be in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He satisfies in a way that none of the pursuits that we can find or access right now would even satisfy us anyways. Or as prophet Isaiah proclaims God's call to us in the wilderness like this, he says, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give a drink to my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Did you see it? I mean, David, David is showing us here what a faithful pursuit of God looks like in the wilderness. 
as well as how God satisfies fully, even in this place of dependence.